Hello and welcome to the Sitcom Club. And before we go any further, may I say, Ocho, happy Thanksgiving. Well, I'm still a British citizen, so... Yeah, but you're there, aren't you? I am here, yes. Now, for listeners who don't know, and by that I mean me, can you talk us through a traditional Thanksgiving? And I'm not talking about the obvious bits like you sit down and have turkey. I know that. I've seen Roseanne. But in terms of just overall atmos, is it complete shutdown public holiday? Is it is there lots of top larks on the well, TV? Or there has it... been a big fuss about certain stores deciding to open on Thanksgiving Day. And then certain other stores saying, we are not opening on Thanksgiving Day. Am I right in thinking that Kmart is opening at 6am on the day itself? I, wouldn't be, I haven't really paid attention. I thought you were going to say no I wouldn't be shopping dead in Kmart. <laughs> I don't even know if there's a Kmart anywhere near here. Is Kmart more like your little Aldi rather than Tesco? I've never been to one. Okay. And of course you've got Walmart. There's Walmart, yes, which is just a big barn full of cheap stuff because they don't pay the people who work there. A <laughs> little bit of politics. That aside, what's your traditional Thanksgiving? Are you going to be watching Charlie Brown on ABC and Macy's Parade and all that kind of shit? I don't know yet. I tend not to be told about these things too far in advance, so I don't know where the Thanksgiving is going to be held. But generally, the family all pile in, so all the in-laws all pile into one place. And previous years, it's been a buffet rather than everybody sitting around one table. And everybody eats... And everybody goes, oh, hello, I haven't seen you since last week. And then the kids run around and there's tears before bedtime. Now, this is a shocking level of ignorance on and my part. And pumpkin pie. Well, no, mm. yeah, well, I've heard, I've heard of this pumpkin pie and I've, I've had oh, yeah. pumpkin pie before and I didn't get much out of it. I found it rather sort of, mm, I mean, it was nice, but maybe it wasn't. It's a good one. It should have this slight, strange toffee-ish kind of flavour. The one that I had was more sort of bland, but it probably wasn't top quality gear you know it came it came from glasgow for god's sake we don't we don't have pumpkin pie in glasgow that we're not experts in the production of it they didn't deep fry it did they no they didn't no well, this is this is a, give that a try this is a bit of a myth i mean we do deep fry 95 percent of our food here but not everything and we draw the line at some things although i can't actually think of anything that we would draw the line at at all tell you one thing i've never had deep fried cadbury's cream egg well, I mean, they started that here, of course, a couple of years ago, went to the Orange County Fair, and there was a place that did a jalapeno with a baby Ruth, which is, I suppose, kind of like a Mars bar. I don't know if it's exactly like a Mars bar inside, but to give you an idea of the size and the nature of it, put inside a jalapeno and then deep fried, and chocolate-covered bacon. Oh, I love some I of that. I didn't. Oh, man. I Honestly... I I don't know that I would enjoy it, and I don't know that I would develop a taste for it on a, on a regular basis, but I would definitely try it. So before we start giving thanks, it's outstanding business. I forgot to mention, we had the mailbag, and I didn't mention two contributions from my own wife. My excuse for that is they weren't written down. They were just mentioned to me in the car, so I forgot them. Well, uh, to be fair, I've never ever said at the end of any show... If you've got any feedback for us, tweet us at the sitcom club or email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com or just tell Ojo in the car. Yeah, That's don't, my fault. don't tell me in the car because there's always a good chance I'll forget. So one of them was, my wife had this amazing idea, ever decreasing circles, the Ealing film. Just imagined Alec Guinness as Martin and Dennis Price as Paul. <laughs> 
We're not quite sure about the other parts. We really need to go on a big Ealing film binge and start picking people out. I was maybe thinking of young Kenneth Connor for Howard. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Maybe Joyce Grenfell for Hilda. Don't know if it would be too small of a part for her. I did suggest, depending when you make it, if you, if you push it up to like the mid-50s, you could always have Peter Sellers for Rex Tynan. Yeah, oh, yeah. And then I suggested, yes. the thing about the thing is, is that Dennis Price is kind of in the Anthony Valentine class. Slightly sinister, a little bit sadistic. So I said, what about Ian Carmichael for Paul? And she said, he's not handsome enough. Interesting. I mean, I would Yeah, I didn't... I didn't know that. I didn't know he wasn't handsome enough. No, for I would. I would anything. have. Yeah, I would have thought that Ian Carmichael around about that period of time. I would have thought he was quite dishy. But what do I know? I did actually have. I know we said you got two items, but just on this topic, recasting. I did have a couple of thoughts earlier on that I wanted to run by you with regard to Enemy at the Door. Okay. Simon Cadell replaced by Ian Lavender. <laughs> <laughs> What, Ian Lavender in Comeback Mrs. Noah? No, 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 just, just Ian Lavender. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing being an unrepentant Nazi, but being so relentlessly horrible to Molly Sugden is a step too far. No, it I just, don't think the viewers would take it. It's a depressing enough show as it is. No, he's not playing the same character as Noah. They're just going to experiment and just say I've to never him, seen Ian Lavender in anything dead straight. I've only ever seen him in comedies, so I can't tell you. I imagine he's probably got serious acting chops. I would expect so. I mean, it's just been on, unfortunately, by the time you're hearing this. But Carry On Behind features Ian Lavender. And it's not a straight role by any means, obviously. It's, it's a comedic role. But he's a bit more straightforward than Pike, for example. He's not really putting on a character. He's more coming across as just himself. I'm not saying no. I'm saying I'd I'd have to see more to get an, an idea of what he'd be like. Right, I'm going to give you a name. Don't bomb this out straight away, okay? Because I I think that you're going to sort of think, no, he's taking the piss. Ready? If you say Christopher Strawley. <laughs> no. There'll be words. Don Estelle. <laughs> this is a serious proposition. He's been in Eight and a Half Hot Mum. He's a bit worried about getting typecast in these comedic roles, doing his pantomimes and what have you. Wants to try something a bit more straight, a bit more sinister. Give the man a chance. Bloody hell. Only if it's a musical. <laughs> oh, yes. Speaking of which, it's all about the revivals these days. I mean, we've talked about Open All Hours. If you haven't already seen it, Google still Open All Hours. There's a ton of location photographs just appeared in the Daily Mail the other week. And I'm actually really, really, really interested to see this now. I mean, I was interested to see it anyway, but David Jason, he really looks apart. It doesn't look like Granville suddenly trying to step into Arkwright's shoes. He actually looks, yeah, he's where... I've just replied to somebody on a message board, actually. They said, shops like that don't exist anymore. Oh, they do. They do. I am not a prejudiced person, but the person who posted that, I'm pretty sure I know that they're Southern. Trust me, they, they and do. And I saw the picture and I, th I thought, yeah, it's a little old-fashioned, but... Honestly, there are at least two shops of similar type talk right it's not identical but at least two of them within walking distance of me where i am right now including a nice little hardware store which is that kind of place that just sells everything no matter what it is that you're looking for you go into the little hardware store and if they haven't got it they will know somebody who has in the locality i do not doubt if i went up and down every street in bradford 
I would find a couple of those kind of shops. And Huddersfield, probably even more so. Well, I presume it will be addressed in the show itself. Well, it was in the original series, wasn't it, by the end? Yes. People coming in going, oh, you don't get shops like this anymore. <laughs> exactly. And the, the fact that those shops are now, there's even less of them, doesn't mean to say there are none of them. So therefore, it's, it's still ideal location for a situation comedy but also the photographs themselves they, they make very interesting viewing it's well worth having a wee peek and yeah he really does look the part he looks like Arkwright always said to okay, Grandpa I found the brown coat weird that is the one thing that seems wildly anachronistic to well me. no the thing is Arkwright always said to Granville all this will be yours one day and given that it is still Arkwright store of the same type, we're presuming, because we haven't seen it. You know, this is something we need to tackle, actually, because a while ago we've been doing a whole What Happens Next, and we had Granville out in the big wide world. And I don't want people going, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Look at what Roy Clark has wrought. I think the rules are different when you're bringing it back on TV. We were definitely talking about what happens when open all hours is over. And a thing that occurred to me, if Only Fools and Horses had ended in 1988 and they were bringing it back now for a one-off special, Rodney would still be in, well, they'd all still be in Nelson Mandela House. In fact, they, they had to put them back there when they brought it back after giving it a proper ending anyway. <sighs> yeah. And I think it's just the, the way television reacts. It would be interesting to bring something back 25 years later and say everything has changed. Everything is radically different. Let's just want to say my piece. What we were talking about was not a prediction. It was, I think I said this at the time, it's what happened when, when you open the little door and let them fly out of the cage. But when it comes to television revivals, you've always got to put them back in the cage because nobody's brave enough. And the second piece of mail baggage from my wife. I think Barry Evans is the lead in Doctor in the House. Why do you think it's Robin Nedwell? Well, they both are different times. Well, the reason is, is that when I was growing up, I would occasionally see Look In. Sorry, some of you might be able to hear my niece crying in the background. She is being looked after, just not to her satisfaction, just being fussy. I've not left an unattended baby to do this podcast. There used to be a comic strip in, actually, I think it was an old Look In. I think it was a Look In annual I had as a kid. And there was a Doctor in the Something comic strip. And there was Robin Nedwell's picture at the top. Whereas, obviously, when Doctor in the House was shown on PBS, I suppose, it must have been the earliest series with Barry Evans being definitely your front and centre lead. And I guess they never got to the later series. No, it's quite understandable if you if you could get mixed up between Barry Evans and Robin Nedwell, because, of course, then Nedwell, he was in charge later on. I think it was actually what well, it was called, Doctor in Charge. That was the first series that he was the head of, along with... George Layton and Jeffrey Davis, and of course there's so many of them. There's Doctor at Sea, Bob Todd, Doctor on the Go, which I think we've just been watching recently, and my favourite of all, Doctor Down Under, and not my favourite of all, Doctor at the Top. So, yes. <laughs> so I have one last thing. We're not going to actually tackle this now, but I just want to put the idea out there. It's a casting game. Winnie the Pooh as a sitcom. Not as animals, as a sitcom. Okay. Jeffrey Palmer as Eeyore. There's your first one. I like we'll that. come back to this because otherwise we won't have enough time to do what we're supposed to be doing, our Thanksgiving special. Neil Morrissey is Tigger. Ooh, good one. Any other suggestions for winning the Pukaisers? Let us know. We can come back to that. But yes, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll throw that out to the Twitterati. So as we mentioned way, way back, all those months ago at the start of the show, it is Thanksgiving this week. And as a result, we thought it would be 
a funny little wheeze to take a look at some US slash UK cover versions, should we call it that? This is practically the pilot for Sitcom Club USA, which is definitely a plan. It is, it is indeed. But anyway, it's a transatlantic crossover today. So we're looking at two examples of UK to US sitcoms and one example of a US to UK sitcom. And... Right, let's save time. On the buses, rubbish. Lots of luck, rubbish. <laughs> Who's the boss? Rubbish. Upper hand, rubbish. Right then, now. Now we can talk about the stuff we like. Now, hang on a second. I I, I, I would love to... Is that not how we do it? I would love to go through it in that rapid-fire fashion, but I think that would be a bit of a disservice. But we're going to talk about the sex lives of the Ropers. Oh, yeah, of course. We're going to get we on to lots that. Of time but we that. always talk about the sex lives of the Ropers. But the thing is that we need to sort of flesh that out a bit more. I okay. Think. On the buses is rubbish in the way that it sucks and is bad. You see, a re- that's reasoned argument. Okay, now, oh, hang on a second. Let's set out our stall. Let's plant our seed at this stage. Because we haven't actually told anybody what we're talking about in terms of show. I've just told people. Yeah, yeah, but we went through... Four so- of the six shows we're going to be dealing with. I think they can guess the other two. Okay, so to begin with, On the Buses. Now, I am a fan of On the Buses. I say that unashamedly. I did laugh at some of the right way. I'm not going to backtrack on that. On the Buses is one of those shows. I actually watched four episodes of On the Buses last night without even realising it. Popped in one of the DVDs while we were doing our research for today because we're going to be discussing the US adaptation, which is called Lots of Luck. More about that in a moment. And I bunged in one of the On the Buses DVDs last night and it was just playing away quite merrily and I was enjoying it and I never even gave it a thought. And before I know it, an hour and a half's passed. And it's one of those shows where it doesn't make me laugh hugely doesn't make me split my sides but i just like the overall situation again it's, it's one of those things where yeah i just i just like that the setup like the people involved so on i can't easily say that about lots of luck <laughs> you see i just find on the bus is weird and forced and not quite weird enough to be enjoyably weird until it goes on to film <laughs> but, yes. but generally it's just i mean like at the beginning the plot of the episode we watched is there's a contest to get a photograph of a London bus driver to represent London transport. Now, Jack is going, oh, have you seen this? Look at this. Oh, it's all about this. And then later on, within like two sentences, he knows the rules. He's never seen it before, but then suddenly he knows the rules. <laughs> and it's just everything, you know, it's just like, oh, but the, let's get to a joke. And it's it doesn't build up to it. It's a bit like the problem I had with Mrs. Noah. Oh, somebody just does something funny and everybody howls like the bit as a result of this stan the lead character puts on a face pack yeah that was quite creepy actually yeah well it wasn't the matter that it was creepy but it's just like everybody starts oh let's just put some more of this on (laughs) yeah it's like there's no like i say there's no build people just start slopping stuff on in lieu of actual comedy again it's a simple thing and instead of getting complicated as people add different ridiculous suggestions. <laughs> Let's just get a handful of this. Splat. There you go. Comedy. <laughs> well, it is ITV. We've only got 24 minutes to play with. So it's that crucial five and a half minutes that's been thrown away that had all the build-up and, and, and made sense. And so yeah, it doesn't just... work for me. It's interesting. I'm not saying that anybody should be ashamed for liking it. I just don't find it funny, which is always a problem. 
Well, like and I say, comedy, it's... even like down to Stephen Lewis. Going, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> but see like, that, that well, that's 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 sort it's, of... it's not even a tick. It's just kind of like he's pulling a face for a laugh. Now here's the weird thing. Well, the thing is, but that that's what I quite like. But I like the repetition of it. I mean, I, I understand that sometimes, yeah, repetition could really get in your nerves. But that's the thing I like about on the buses is that I know this is a hackneyed old expression, but you know where you are with it. It's that kind of viewing where you don't particularly want to start watching something that's taxing on the mind. You don't want to put on something where, you know, it requires your full concentration. It's now, that's, what yeah, I, that's exactly why I, I said I'm not I could talking just... about it in terms of, oh, it's not, it's not Oscar Wilde. It's not even Laurel and Hardy, which is undemanding and repetitive, but beautifully paced and crafted. Well, yeah, of course. No, and nobody's, nobody's claiming that it is, but... I, yeah, I still, I do still. It's, it's like you could have made something good and broad and undemanding. Instead, you just made something broad and undemanding. You know that sketch in Alexis Sale stuff where Stephen Lewis's Blakey crops up unexpectedly? Yes. Yeah. That's killingly funny because he just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and also, who put that Kazi there? <laughs> that's, that's just great. That works for some reason. It's the, the same. Somebody put a toilet in my office. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, so except right at the end of the episode, there's a bit on film. I liked that. That was weird. It was really odd pace. It, stuff just happened in a really unexpected way. <laughs> I think as the series goes on, there are more and more little bits like that, especially in the last series as well. The last series is, is very odd because well actually that episode was from the last series so already you're missing Michael Robbins. By the middle of the series you're missing Reg Varney. And so they start introducing more and more characters at the edges and they do yeah they, they've got some they've got some odd situations that come up in that last series and there was a bit more on film and yeah some of the I mean we haven't even touched on All-Star Comedy Carnival 72 that, that's a you know, different matter <laughs> all by itself. It does have a delightfully strange atmosphere. It's surreal. Do you want to describe why Lots of Luck gets off to a less than auspicious start? Oh, the title sequence and theme tune. The theme tune is a musical version of Peter Finch's famous speech from Network. Only with the line, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore, replaced with Lots of Luck. (laughs) A dollar buys a nickel's worth. Our air is unfit to breathe. Our food is unfit to eat. Well, Lots of Luck is... I used to buy a pickle. It only cost a nickel. Everything is rotten. Lots of luck. They did not actually sing. The air is not fit to breathe. The food is not fit to no, eat. No, that was that was that was network. I was quoting. <laughs> that wasn't, they're not quite that blunt, but yeah, it's certainly heading in that direction. And you just have the cast members one after another looking into the camera, going "Lots of luck." And Carl Reiner's behind this. Yes, that's right. That's right. And again, it's one of those shows where there's a good cast and crew behind now, it. D- did you send me an actual episode, or did you send me a camera rehearsal? Everybody seems to be slightly looking past each other. Their eyes aren't focusing. If I had access to camera rehearsals for lots of luck, I would have sent them by now. Trust me, they would have been in, in font but size. It's just like everybody, you know, letters. Dom DeLuise is saying to whoever's playing his brother in law, You idiot, I hate you. But he's not, it's like they've all been green screened. They're not acting off each other, they're just saying their lines and then stopping. 
Well, one of the reasons why on the buses gets criticised quite a bit, and I can understand this, is that it does seem to revolve a great deal around not just the sort of the, the sexist elements and so on that you can point to, but also the dialogue in general is, when you take the studio audience out of it, the dialogue could be construed as, as quite nasty. I and mean, the kind of insults that they throw at each other over the dinner table are, are a bit more than just straightforward needling. And because it's presented in that way, and of course because it's supposed to get big laughs and it does get big laughs from the audience and so on, eventually you just sort of accept that's the reality in which this is operating in. But you could take that dialogue and you could have a really, really horrible situation with it without having to tweak it too much. But then, in most cases, everybody's given as good as they get. Whereas in lots of luck, it just seems as if it's it's less clever dialogue and it's more, it's just been turned up, the heat's been turned up a couple of notches. And it's not quite outright aggression, but yeah, everybody just seems to be a bit angrier and less happy with the lot and so on. And Arthur in particular, he's a right pain in the arse than this. I mean... And, okay, Arthur in on the buses. No, obviously he's no great shakes as a husband. He treats all of disgracefully. But at least, at the very, very least, he's got some sort of standards. He goes out and works and puts his hand in his pocket for the housekeeper and so on. Was this guy here? He's just a leech. I mean, he's got no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And yeah, I mean, if I was Dom D. Louise and I was stuck in the same house as that guy, I think I'd probably go off my nut as well. The Olive character as well. Now. Okay, we get the idea. Olive is supposed to be the most horrifically ugly woman in history. That's the assumption. This is reinforced by the opening titles where they... It's like, who's that supposed to be? That's the Olive you wanted to be in it. But at least with Anna Karen, they do give her an unflattering centre parting and something that makes her hair a bit dry. And she does at least pull a face. This woman, they just put the glasses on her. Job done. But I also noticed as well that she is a bit more willing to argue back with Arthur. It's almost like the scales have been tipped a little bit more equally in this arrangement and she doesn't take Arthur's lip quite as, how can I put it all of, quite often her comeback is simply don't be so rude. Whereas here, she's quite willing to fire back at Arthur. Especially as he's just I mean, he just he just looks like he just got blown in with the scrap newspapers in the yard. I mean, bloody hell. There's, there's not it's much It's interesting how close it. they don't stick. This is the problem that I was having when we were putting the show together, is that I was sending you details of, here's a couple of episodes of this show, US and UK version, and the same for this one. But for lots of luck, I was having a lot of difficulty actually trying to get episodes which really matched and i think i sort of got a couple that were in similar vein but even then they they really weren't they seem principally interested in the domestic setup and that's really what they like the bus thing i've watched i managed to watch three episodes and principally they're interested in the lost property office at the bus depot yeah there's a lot less about the workplace isn't there yeah and i'm not even sure there's any blakey character not that immediately springs to mind i mean there is a, a version of jack in there and in Who is the, at least not quite so frightening. No one could be as frightening as Jack. I say some horrible things about Gary Sparrow and George Roper, but neither of them, even the Gary Sparrow in my mind in this Series 7, this, this unwritten, unbroadcast, imaginary Series 7 of Goodnight Sweetheart, he's got nothing on Jack Harper. Jack Harper has absolutely 
no redeeming qualities as a human being whatsoever. And I even sent you a couple of episodes. I know last week you mentioned Bell in Nightingales, but at least Bell in Nightingales doesn't live in a recognizable world. Well, yes. At least he's a bizarre, monstrous child (laughs) man. Yes. But also, it bugs me about the fact that Jack is so willing to dish out to anybody. And I mean, I even sent you an episode which shows him at his worst. I haven't watched it yet. Well, basically, I won't won't give away too many of the details, but basically, he's supposed to be Jack's mate, and he's his next-door neighbour and so on. And as soon as Blakey dangles the possibility of promotion in front of him, he's grasping him in for every single thing he's ever done. He's saying, oh, I can tell you something else he gets up to. Oh, I can tell you, you know, how he sneaks into work when he's late and so on. He's just grasping up left, right and centre. Yeah, he's a bastard. So let's move on to something that made the leap from the US to the UK. You were a big fan of the show. (laughs) It was the first time I'd ever watched an episode of Who's the Boss all the way through, and the last time. No, all I can say against it is it's not funny. At least it doesn't sap the colours from life. (laughs) It just seems to be that stereotype of the American sitcom where somebody walks on and the audience applauds they seem to be presuming on that goodwill and so somebody will come on do something that's not particularly funny and that's that's your joke it is a bit of a problem I've seen in a lot of modern comedy where nice throwaway jokes are not thrown away they're put front and center to serve as the main joke of a thing in this they're not even nice throwaway jokes somebody comes on and yodels like Tarzan (laughs) there you go there's your joke And another one of those plots where all it needs is for somebody to say what is happening, communicate clearly. I mean, farce, good farce, is all about people not sharing knowledge with each other, complicating things needlessly. There's a simple explanation, but I can't give it to you. Here, there's a simple explanation. The person to whom this explanation can be given, it's none of their business anyway. (laughs) Well, we need to we need to explain a little bit about the the, the no, plot here, don't we? No, no, uh, that's enough of that. Right, moving on. <laughs> Goodbye, on. everybody. Oh, hang on. Oh, hang on. No, we haven't even explained what who's the boss is yet, because who's the boss is who cares? Well, I don't know that show. Who cares? If you want to look it up, let me know. But no, who's the boss is what became the upper hand in the UK, and the first time I'd ever heard of who's the boss when it was featured on Undiamonds TV Weekly following a viewer's complaint that their local ITV region had just finished showing who's the boss over the previous five or six years, and then suddenly this new show comes along, the upper hand, and hang on, all the bloody dialogue's exactly the same. But in the original version, it's Tony Danza, best known for Taxi, and he's male housekeeper. We all know the situation. If you've ever seen the upper hand, it's exactly the same. And who's the boss? Doing the whole will they, won't they business. And it's early days. The so thing they... is, is well, yeah, this this is really early on in the series, isn't it? Yeah. So, so it's not like there's years of simmering sexual tension. No, but clearly they, they want to get down to it. The th- well, again, it's part of the problem there is what's stopping you then? You're well, a pair of adults. This is the problem, because what's happened, plot-wise, is that uh, the kids and grandmother are going to be out the the house over the weekend, and it's going to leave the two of them alone. So in the upper hand, we've got Charlie and Caroline. In Who's the Boss, we have 
Tony and we have Angela. And Angela has arranged to have dinner with some fellow who's flying in from Baltimore or whatever. And Tony, he's on the phone trying to arrange a date and so on. And then there's all manner of confusion going on, you know, fog in the air and, and flights being delayed and, and what have you. Whereas you're thinking they've got the place to themselves. The second the grandma walks out the door with the kids, you just think the two of them were just clap eyes at each other and think, yeah, hey, the, the straight up the stairs. Their is so obvious as well. Well, just get on for them. It's not like one person feels the attraction, the other doesn't, or there's any good reason. Okay, it's, it's not even there's a mutual attraction where there's a very good reason for them to believe that that attraction isn't there, that the other person kind of hates them. And yeah, okay, fine, there's the employer-employee relationship, but it's the 1980s. But the thing is that we're being disingenuous here because we know what the reason is, and the reason is that they'd quite like to get eight seasons out of the show, whereas if they do run up the stairs in the middle of series one and then get down to it, then show's over. Yeah, but the thing is, my memory of the upper hand, they didn't play that much of the will-they-want-their game. They weren't going gooey over each other quite so... Obviously, I think that's that's the problem. It's not the setup. It's not the will they want they set up. It's the fact that sort of they all, they keep looking at each other longingly. Well, for various reasons we won't bore you with. They end up with, and I don't even know how realistic this is. I didn't even think it was. It certainly wasn't realistic in the British adaptation. I don't even think it was realistic in the American one. But apparently, you can have a waiter come to your house with a meal that's ready and already prepared, and there you are, and everything on a big silver platter and he just knocks on the door and says well hey I'm your meta <laughs> for the evening um, and so he turns up and for exactly as you were alluding to there just now Ocho for some reason they cannot tell this guy who they've never seen before yeah, never will see up. again what happens is Tony Danza is going out for his date with the woman that he's going to date that night Judith Light as Angela Bauer is staying home and her date for the night has cancelled So the waiter comes in with the meal. He sees Judith Light in her best clothes and he sees Tony Danza in his good suit. And it's like, oh, I brought your meal. And Tony, no, I'm going out. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? This nice lady, you shouldn't be like this. No, 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 you don't understand. The date's off. Oh, no, no, you got to treat her nice. You got to treat her good. What a beauty. Look, she's wearing that nice dress. She got her head on No point is we say, no, what you don't understand is my date's cancelled. That is not the man I'm dating. He's got a date of his own. That's my employee. (laughs) That is not said. And no point is to say, no, we are not the couple. The cancelled date is between two other people. And I am not dating this woman. Everybody's getting embarrassed, but nobody seems to want to extricate themselves from this problem. All he needs to go is, look, I'm as gay as a daffodil. And then just walk <laughs> off. That'd be fine. This, this waiter they've never met before apparently has so much influence over them that they have to have a romantic dinner together and go all, oh, oh having a romantic dinner together. Oh, and I'm really enjoying it. And I'm really attracted to you, but I better not act on it because I'm 12. <laughs> We're a couple of giggling kids so you weren't a fan of the show then and the upper hand isn't any better the end now the thing is now that was a strange thing about the upper hand because they were still larking about and it was fundamentally the same they had an extra scene there seems to be a little bit less of the gooiness they actually see well in some ways the british class system works in its favor that somebody like caroline would actually be incredibly awkward about being left alone with the help 
I don't mean in a in a way that's it's unworthy, but I mean in a in a natural middle class way. She just have a sort of gabbling self consciousness. Okay, well, I'm going to put forward an explanation as to why they would have done what they've done, and I still think it's really tenuous in a way. I mean, I agree. I think that they should have just come out and say, "No, mate, you've got it wrong." And by the way, it's none of your fucking business anyway. And they just <laughs> dole out the food and fuck off. Smack, right? But <laughs> and that's the woman. Um, <laughs> but you're not going to get that on. CBS or whatever the hell it was. Anyway, um, the point is this. Here is a convoluted excuse as to why they behave the way they do. Because Tony slash Charlie does have eyes for Judith slash Caroline. And so when the opportunity presents itself for them to have a nice little candlelight dinner, even given the whole background and he's already got a date on and, and, and so on, so on, so on, he, first of all, he thinks, well, there's an opportunity here. I mean, I am actually being offered the chance to have dinner with her, nevertheless. And also, overridingly, he doesn't want to see her hurt and he doesn't want her to have to sit there and have her dinner by herself. And it's that that's actually the driving force behind that, rather than they can't just tell this waiter where they can yeah, shove they, his Yeah, they just don't write it up that way. It's not like the idea itself is a dead loss. And it could be that we just watched a really bad episode of Who's the Boss. I think ran long enough. If anybody from the Who's the Boss fan club is deeply upset, I am perfectly willing to believe that every other episode than this really worked. The upper hand was marginally better, but even then... I don't mind the upper hand. I can watch the upper hand when it's on ITV3, especially if I know that there's something better coming on straight afterwards then oh yeah i can uh, that's fine i mean i, I find yeah John oh of course the interesting thing of the upper hand had an extra few minutes to play with well yes they did yeah and it actually i mean it just required an extra scene to be crowbarred in which didn't have any significance as far as the storyline was concerned but they were dealing with the b plot which was the reason that the mother and the children were not were not in the house I mean, I like all the people who are in the upper hand. I like all the performers themselves, and I think that they they endear themselves to the audience. And of course, regardless of the fact that it went on for eight series in America, that's absolutely no reason for it to have been so successful in Britain. There's plenty of examples of shows where a British version has been attempted, and it's just died in its arse. And like we've just spoken about just now. And the, the, but the weird thing, of course, about the upper hand... Did, did we find out it ran two more series? It came to a natural conclusion and then was brought back due to popular demand. Well, let's have a look. No, I think there's only one extra series. There are, right, there are, there are eight series of Who's the Boss. There are seven The Upper Hand. And, uh, I mean, probably, like we just said about Only Fools and Horses, that really there were six series and then a finish. And then, a couple of years later, yeah, it came back by popular demand. And I think that... But the they'd already finished the setup. Will they want their yes they already finished themselves Very off. much so. This is exactly the reason why they couldn't just have run up the stairs and got up to this, that, and the other in the middle of Who's the Boss, because, of course, yeah, it would have just killed the whole damn thing stone dead. Yeah, Who's well, the Boss apparently doesn't have a last episode. That's outrageous. How can not have a last episode? After all that so time invested still stuck out there. How can you invest all that time into eight series and you don't get a proper payoff? I imagine there's a lot, and I mean a lot, of fan fiction. <laughs> One day, we're going to do sitcom club fan fiction. I don't think we're going to write it. I mean, we're going to go looking for examples of it. We're going to have a lot of fun on that Oh, you're episode. going to read out that Keeping Up Appearances? Well, yeah, that, that's going to be right at the top of the list. Um, that, that, that That's a classic. But um, no, 
Well, we're just saying just because a series is successful on one side of the Atlantic does not necessarily mean to say that its adaptation on the other side is going to be successful. And we've just been talking about lots of luck. There are seven series of On the Buses to choose from. There is one season of Lots of Luck. Yeah, it's a tribute to the cast and crew of The Upper Hand. They made it work. So I'm not at all inclined to watch any more episodes of Who's the Boss? I really wasn't interested. I can quite happily watch The Upper Hand. If it's on, I wouldn't go out my way to see it. But if it's on, yeah, what the hell. Are we ever going to talk about Quantum Leap? We will discuss Quantum Leap at some point in the future. For new listeners, do we need to give a quick uh, refresher course on what I that is? I was told Mooncat that there was an episode of The Upper Hand that was a parody of Quantum Leap. He refused to believe this. I'm still not entirely sure. And I found evidence, and sure enough, it isn't quite a full-on one-for-one parody of Quantum Leap, but the episode is called Quantum Leap, and there are a couple of little references. It's actually a It's a Wonderful Life riff, but for some reason they dressed it up in a little bit of Quantum Leap's clothing. There must be dozens and dozens of sitcom episodes which have played off this storyline oh, of yes. It's a Wonderful Life. But well, you're it's, saying- it's one of the really standard tropes. <laughs> Even the 1990s Zorro TV series has one which, of course, is set about 100 years before the original takes place. But also, I do love that the title has the least amount of effort put into it. It's called It's a Wonderful Zorro. <laughs> well, I mean, the king of all adaptations, as we've already established, is the... Can we version. have Zorro Club as well? Because I do like that TV series. I like the fact that the whole point is the only thing that separates Zorro from Don Diego is his black mask. And Don Diego is six foot five, (laughs) has a very distinctive voice and moustache and jawline. The Pueblo of Los Angeles has about 20 people in it and nobody works out that (laughs) there's two guys here with six foot five and have this distinctive gruff voice and a chin so sharp you could cut leather with it. And and one of them's wearing a mask. It's almost like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We'd recognise him if he took it off. It's still loads of fun, and I would never hear a word against it. So we've got Callan, we've got Dick Turpin, and we've got Zorro. We've got to add to the non-sitcom sitcom club list. Am I missing anything? Oh, Enemy at the Door as well. Yep. Okay. okay, so we've been from the UK to the US, US to the UK, and finally, we're going to go UK-US again. Man About the House became Free's Company. Yes. Last time we did Man About the House, I was none too complimentary about Three's Company. And I stand by that for the early episodes I watched. They didn't seem to work. For this one, I had to watch a later episode, and it seemed to have got comfortable with itself and got itself into its own particular groove. It was a lot lot more enjoyable. I've seen a few, I don't know, about maybe a dozen or so episodes of Three's Company over the last few weeks, and... I, yeah, I'm enjoying it more as time goes on. And yes, from about, say, Series 2 or what have you, it's less a straightforward, we've got this British script to adapt and so on. From Series 2 and then about, it's starting to then just find itself. It's starting to become its own show. At that point, it's still adapting British scripts. But again, very, very successful series and had spin-offs itself. I mean, there was... Freeze a Crowd, which was a spin-off from Robin's Nest, and The Ropers, which was a spin-off from George and Mildred. And I think it's probably one of the most well-known of all 
American sitcoms. And yet, I don't have any great recollection of it being shown on British TV. I know it was, but I don't really have a great deal of recollection of, of seeing it often. Not not as much as, say, things There's like... There's one great big difference between the two. Episode one of Man About the House, at the end, how, how did Chrissy ever persuade George and Mildred Roper to let Robin Tripp stay there? They said, he's gay. Episode two of Man About the House... Oh, by the way, that whole thing about me being gay, that was just nonsense. All right. Three's Company, no, that stays in place. The Ropers think that Jack is gay. And apparently when they get the new landlord, he's this, it's the same setup. Indeed. Yeah, yeah that, that's pretty much the case. The, the interesting now. thing about that is you'd think it would be the other way around. The UK seems to be a heck of a lot more comfortable, or was then, with gay humour. You'd think the whole, oh, by the way, I'm not gay. Let's get that out of the way. Will be more of an American tick of the seventies. So that's just that's just interesting, and I guess it shows where American sitcom was headed. That it was it was so comfortable with that that it kept it going even when it had an excuse to drop it. I'm going to make a point here, which I can't really back up, but I'm just wondering: is there something in relation to American social norm and what have you that said that that reason had to stick? I mean. Was it that unthinkable that you could have a man sharing a flat with two women that that they actually had to cling on to that supposed reason? I don't know. I think to me it's just like, oh, why why throw away a good source of jokes? It's in this rewrite. There's a whole little scene where Jack is looking like he's trying to seduce Stanley Roper just to make him uncomfortable, just for laughs. So I suppose it's a case of, well, you know, we could get some more mileage out of that. Now, this episode, this was a straight adaptation of a specific episode but unlike who's the boss the upper hand whereas we had one extra scene in the upper hand which looked as if it was principally because the running time in the uk would be longer than the us version here they were a bit more willing to play about with the format they're very confident i like it there are jokes omitted and added in both versions they've obviously got their different priorities there's neither you could sort of say, well, this is clearly the superior use of this concept. This is clearly the superior version of this script. And there's one major difference. The pretentious boyfriend. Yes, he's a little... He's a big stereotype in the British version. Again, hobbyist as Sado. I feel quite bad for him in a way. Though they do make sure that he is obviously a snob. I don't know why they changed that in the American version, because then the way they write him out seems incredibly perfunctory. In... Freeze Company, he's solely there for the purpose of establishing why there would be a film camera in the household. And as soon as he served that purpose, he's he's done away with. Whereas in... You know, he's constantly going, did you enjoy it? Did, really? Really? Did you really enjoy the film? Whereas the British one is, oh yes, yes, it was marvellous. Because no. he enjoyed it too. Now, of course, we've, we've actually we've overlooked something that is also germane to the American adaptation, and that is that there is a strange little bit of tinkering, which doesn't, on the face of it, doesn't really seem necessary, but it's still been done. There's tinkering to Chrissy and Joe in terms of their character. Yes, I don't understand that. Well, it is it is odd because you've still got, for a start, you've still got recognisably Chrissy and Joe. So if you looked at a photograph of Free's company, if you looked at production still, compared to the production still of Man About the House, straight away you can see who is supposed to be who 
or so you think. But for a start, Chrissy and Joe swap names. So think about this. So Paul Wilcox. Well, no, they haven't now... swapped names. They've swapped personalities. Everything that happens to British Chrissy happens to American Chrissy, and they're still both Chrissy, but they have the personality of the other. <laughs> I've got this image in my head that somebody's pitching this to an American producer. Wisecracking, smart brunette, and there's a dumb blonde. And the people are going to go for a smart, wisecracking brunette. Uh, make the brunette a dumb blonde. Okay, so we've got a dumb blonde and a dumb blonde. Uh, you can't have two dumb blondes. So make <laughs> that other dumb blonde a smart, wisecracking brunette. Okay. So the only the only reason I can think why it's like, you know, this would work better if we switch them for no reason. It's not like you get more jokes. Well, I mean, surely it would have been a... It's not even like the plots are going to be significantly different because all the stupid things are still going to be said. It's given the script associates a lot more work because they have to reverse engineer the plot from the British script and then reassemble it then with their new slightly different configuration. But as you said, there doesn't seem to be any obvious reason why it was necessary to do that. But if you're comparing the two in the case of the British version, it's Paula Wilcox's character who is going out with the the film buff. And in the American version, it's Suzanne Somers, who you would say was actually the, at first glance, it appears to be the American Sally Thompson. But nevertheless. So once you get your head around that, then one thing that I don't like about Freeze Company, and obviously this goes for the spin-off as well, is that in the first few seasons, the Ropers are the landlords. And then later on, there is a a change because they got their own series uh, and then a new character came in from then on. But I'm not a really big fan of the Ropers compared to George and Mildred because I find that the Mildred is not as assertive as she needs to be in comparison to Eufa Joyce, for example. And whereas George is in the UK, he's always conniving, he's up to no good and so on and so on. Whereas Roper in Free's Company, he just seems to be by and large just sort of doer, a bit miserable. And he's got some of the same character traits, but yeah, I think Helen needs to be more assertive with Stanley. Because it does seem that sometimes she just sort of, she she tolerates him, she puts up with him. And yeah, I think more often she just needs to put her foot down, Mildred style. Yeah, George and Mildred drifted from their Series 1 versions, didn't they? Series 1 George is a lot more sour. I guess, yeah, by the time you get to George and Mildred, the spin-off, then George is a bit more daft than sour, but he's still lacking in social skills. I don't know. If if Stanley Roper lost his temper, I can imagine it would be quite upsetting, whereas George would just look ridiculous. Well, yes, but there is... I mean, this, this is the only instance I can think of when it happens, but there is one episode of Man About the House where the flatmates want to have a party and they go over George's head and ask Mildred and Mildred gives her say-so and then George, because he's so put out about this, actually uses a fair amount of cunning to make sure this party doesn't happen and he says quite coldly to Robin, if I say there's not going to be a party I mean it. And it's almost like George is actually capable of standing up for himself and being heard and getting his way and it would be a different style to as you say, Stanley, yes, yeah, Stanley Roper could definitely lose his temper and it would be quite off-putting, whereas George is too frightened of Mildred. He's always terrified of Mildred's response, whereas Stanley really is not afraid of Helen in the same way. And it makes that weird sexlessness slightly sadder. Well, I'm still intrigued as to why he's always got that damn plunger in his hand. <laughs> because the plumbing must be awful. 
must back up the toilet every time you look at it. There's another reason, I think, why Stanley is more frustrated than George. Look at the quality of pornography he has access to. <laughs> yeah, he's only good. George, only good. There's, you know, there's nudity and things. Stanley, they look like perfectly demure adverts for breath mints. But look at that magazine. Helen holds up. Give it to your grandmother. Stanley has access to penthouse, whereas George, we are... Isn't it called playhouse? Oh, okay. I thought it was regular penthouse that he had, but no. No, it's it's definitely some fakey version. Okay. I've got to make reference to my favourite section of this episode, where Mildred has a, a face pack on. And again, this is a straightforward copy of the British version. And Stanley says to Helen, I think I've seen something like that before uh, on the uh, the TV. And Helen says, oh, really? And Stanley says, yeah, Lon Chaney and the Mummy's Curse. And then he looks to his left as if he's just going to laugh to himself. But he oh, down there looks straight in the lens. It's such a weird little thing. It's almost like... It's a vision-mixing mistake, isn't it? It's like the don't cut to the camera that he's about to laugh into. <laughs> It's the kind of thing you get in like a Reeves and Mortimer sketch. It's that kind of, it's that kind of just weird sort of sideways thing. You think, whoa, that I wasn't expecting that, but I'd like to see more of it. There is also that nice little bit where at the end of the argument, Helen says to Stanley, "Oh, go f- fix your plumbing." So yeah, I quite enjoyed this adaptation. I like the fact that it had wings. It had a bit more willingness to do its own thing but it still didn't it didn't wildly deviate i mean it's still got the same punchline it's still got the same conclusion like i say i'm, I'm warming more and more to freeze company the more that i see it and i think it's john ritter's more of a nebbish than richard o'sullivan sometimes he seems a bit almost jerry lewis ish yes yeah he keeps going into droopy's voice things like that and acting up i get the impression that john ritter is somebody who was able to connect with the audience remarkably well and i think that there is uh, and, and was a remarkable amount of warmth from the audience towards him the live audience at the, the recording does seem to have incredible warmth towards him and he looks like somebody who i don't know i suppose in a, in but a he different... could never be an action hero Galloping across the highways <laughs> with his flintlock in his hand. <laughs> he does seem to have quite a gift for physical comedy as well. And you occasionally see Richard O'Sullivan engaging in that kind of thing, but not to any great extent. Whereas it seems to be something they, they do a lot more with John Ritter. And I could quite imagine John Ritter in different circumstances being the clown being the sort of the, the physical humorist i could imagine them in, in i mean you just mentioned jerry lewis yourself hey, i mean the, i think they're, they're imagining him in, in an american version of ever decreasing circles Ooh. Hey. Mm. okay who's gonna be martin no i mean him as martin <laughs> no seriously um, because really because yeah i'm <laughs> Because he's naturally a bit more hyper and more nerdy, or can be. Like I say, he keeps dropping into the droopy voice, and I don't think it would be particularly taxing to say, just yeah, just play an uptight guy. Okay, well, here's a mad idea, and I'm going to throw this at you without any prior notification. Are there any American shows that you'd like to have seen adapted to Britain, or vice versa? No. 
Or rather, I'm going to have to go through my shelves, give that a lot of thought, see what sitcoms I have and see what... I was thinking about the ones that would be... Ah, you know what? I was going to say the ones that would be impossible to do. There's definitely one that would have been impossible to do in its own time. Citizen Smith. How would you have a lovable communist on American TV in the 70s? Oh, no. Okay. I'm going to respond to that with... He's not a communist, but he's certainly going that way. Rob Reiner's character in All in the Family. But he's not the central character. No, he isn't, but he is. Wolfie he is. is right there in the... Here is a sitcom about a lovable communist with a big chair poster on his wall, and he's lovable and silly. <laughs> it's not the antagonist. No, I mean, it was edgy enough for them to discuss the 1956 election and happy days. You could, <laughs> you could just about get away with that. But yeah, having a, a raving communist in the late 70s, no, I wouldn't have cut it. Last of the summer wine. Well, there's a lot of beautiful countryside in the US, so you just need to find a semi-rural town and have a bunch of old guys wandering around. Or do you think it wouldn't be possible because people take showers rather than baths? <laughs> a bunch of guys running down a hill with a shower head. I'm presuming that the, sh the shower head is attached. It's all plumbed <laughs> in. I don't know. Superficially, and a lot of sitcoms operate on a superficial level, quite normally. Not a problem. That's just how it works. There are very few situations, I'm about to come up to one, that's why, where the differences between the UK and the US are so fundamental that an adaptation would fail. But it happened with that 70s show. Days like these. Because apparently they didn't even do a good job of adapting the idioms. So people say, yeah, like I'm going to sleep through that. People didn't talk like that in Britain in the 70s. And of course, the Grimleys had come and gone, hadn't it? Uh, well, yes, that's right. The Grimleys had been, what was that, 2000... Yeah, the, the fundamental difference is the British 70s were colder and haunted. As we've just seen with Rosal Gummidge. Oh, God. Oh, that's not suitable for anybody. No, that, that it really is dark, isn't it? A couple of examples of adaptations which weren't as successful as the last two we've just discussed. One Foot in the Grave became... Cosby. And right from the word go, I remember them actually saying in the advanced publicity that he wasn't going to be as grumpy as they put it as Victor Meldrew. It's not really about his grumpiness, it's about the types of situations in One Foot in the Grave that you just could not begin to imagine in a network TV sitcom in America. Some of the situations are really, really yeah, it, dark. I, I've seen quite a few of the episodes and it even in some of the ones where they followed at least part of the situation, like the tortoise, it very quickly stops being any kind of adaptation. It's just grumpier Cosby. Some, some of it was quite amusing, which is the highest praise you can give a sitcom. <laughs> no, I did like him doing when he's talking about the opera and he's just wandering around going, ah, there's a sword in my back. That was all right. <laughs> sword, by the way. Sorry, I just realised <laughs> <laughs> Are you suggesting that I have a habit of mishearing words and thinking far, far worse than was originally being scripted? So, on this Thanksgiving week, what top treats are you looking forward to on the small screen? And I know what your answer is going to be. It's going to be Happy Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown, isn't it? I don't know. I don't really watch television. I watch DVDs and streaming services. But you're not seriously telling me that 
Happy Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown, or whatever the hell it's called, is not going to be on television. <laughs> I don't even know if that exists. I know there's a Christmas one, and I know there's a Halloween one. I don't know if there's a Thanksgiving one. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up. I'm gonna look this up for the benefit of our American listeners because I refuse to believe, and I've refused to believe all things Quantum Leap in the past. But no, I refuse to believe that there is not a Thanksgiving episode of Charlie Brown, and that it isn't on television at some point this week. So I'm gonna look this up right now. Charlie Brown Thanksgiving is at least its title on TV Guide. And it's on ABC at 8pm on Thanksgiving night. And it's actually from 1973. Well, I have no plans to tune in. How on earth... Do you know what? I'm going to tune into that. I'm going to watch it. And I don't even celebrate Thanksgiving. So I think that actually that actually asks more questions about me than yourself. The big treat, of course, is 9.30pm, ABC Thanksgiving night, Lady Gaga and the Muppets Holiday Spectacular. There you go. Oh. I'm still not tuning in. And you're not going to get a job with ABC just by yakking about them on a podcast. You don't realise that we've been we've been really ABC heavy this show because Free's Company was ABC, as was Who's the Boss. And now I'm plugging their Thanksgiving later. What about Lots of Luck? Oh, hang on. Let me check. If that was them, then we'll need to cut everything that we've said about Lots of Luck out of the, uh, the, uh, the episode. Because they were one that brought up. Hang on. No, it's okay. It's NBC. Haha, <laughs> shit houses. Right then. So, yeah, that's fine. Now... Next week, next week's show, as the schedule currently states, is intended to be myself and Boggan Strovia discussing the 1980 show Cowboys with Roy Kinnear and Colin Welland. And there is no good reason why that shouldn't happen. So if you hear my voice this time next week and I say anything other than this is a sitcom club and we're discussing Cowboys, then feel free to give me a virtual kicking the nuts over twitter virtual not literal let me emphasize that so anyway thank you very much indeed for tuning in to this special thanksgiving sitcom club in the meantime if you've got anything that you want to let us know about and we've had some lovely feedback in twitter just today actually we've had some twitter feedback coming even whilst we're recording this program yes of course you can find us at the sitcom club on twitter you can email us feedback at sitcomclub.com sitcomclub.com you can find links to ourselves on itunes and the straightforward xml feed which will then give you links to all the previous shows all the way back to april so we will see you again next time on the sitcom club